get started as usual with a word of prayer. So let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the chance to gather this evening. We thank you for this wonderful book, Mere Christianity. We thank you for inspiring your servant, C.S. Lewis, to have written this. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we read and study this book to digest the truth that comes from your word that is expressed in it, and that you would use that truth to transform us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I would like for us to begin, as usual, uh, by saying together our verse from 2 Peter, and I would encourage you to say this out loud with me. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's so many wonderful things in that passage, but I want to just point out this evening that we have been called to God's own glory and excellence. That is a, a high calling and a high destiny and a reminder for us not to settle for the standards of the world. So just a word of welcome to the folks that are new. Um, every week we continue to have new folks coming, um, sometimes on Zoom, but more often on the YouTube or on the podcast. And just a word about how to approach this class I heard from several people this week that are new to mere Christianity and are trying to catch up. And um, I'm excited for you to do that, but I want you to also not put too much pressure on yourself about catching up because I don't want you to grow discouraged. But there are a couple of approaches to this class. One is what we call being on the beach, which means you just come when you feel like it. Uh, you do as much or as little or pay as much attention or as little as you like. Uh, you can have the TV on, watching something else, so long as you're muted. Um, it's all good. Whatever you like, um, we're just delighted to have you on the ride. The second thing you can do is snorkel on those areas that you find interesting or applicable in your own life. Uh, you can go deep on those uh, and stay on the beach on the rest, or you can scuba dive. You can go all the way down the rabbit hole with me on all of these different things that um, are so fascinating. You can read all the different books. Um, you can read the different handouts that come along. And uh, just a little plug again, uh, when we were talking in the marriage chapter, I gave two book plugs. One is for um, Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, which is such a great book, but also for Sheldon Van Auken's A Severe Mercy. Um, that's much shorter than Tim Keller's book, uh, and it's very linked with C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read it, do yourself a favor and do that. Um, and then lastly, if you are not on my email list, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me a note, and we will get you signed up, and that way you will get the links and the summaries and the other materials for the class. And if you are one of those people who's joined us just recently and you're trying to catch up, Please do not block four hours and sit down and try to read the whole book. Um, you will grow discouraged, I fear, if you do that. Maybe not, uh, but it was too much for me when I tried to do that. I would really encourage you to read only one chapter a day um, and maybe take a break between days. Read the chapter aloud. Um, that will help you tremendously, I think, in being able to grasp all that there is in this marvelous book. And part of the reason for that is, of course, that these talks that came to be chapters in the book were all given on the BBC one week apart from each other. And so um, there was plenty of time for their original hearers uh, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest uh, for a week. So, and the C.S. Lewis Doodle is a great uh, site on YouTube to check out. So tonight, um, in terms of music, uh, we have something that I've actually played for you before, 
but I don't know whether anyone will recognize it. And it is something that I think is particularly applicable for tonight's lesson. So, and I've tried to get the volume a little better, so maybe you can hear, so we'll see. So if you think you know what it is, send me a chat. Oh, wait a minute. Got to get my speaker to turn back on here. Hold on just a second. Okay, well, my technology is defeating me, uh, so you're just going to have to wait and listen to it in the link uh, when I send that out. But the music that I was trying to play is uh, Samuel Sebastian Wesley's Blessed Be the God and Father of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the middle of it, there's a little duet between two trebles, and the line of that duet that is so relevant to, for tonight says, love one another with a pure heart fervently. See that you love one another. And so we will be uh, talking a little bit more about that later on, but it is uh, a beautiful piece of music that I would commend to you um, to listen to when we send the link out. So just a quick reminder of the context. Uh, we are in England in wartime in the 1940s. The bombings are still going on. Lewis is broadcasting this in 1942. Um, he's in the third book, and he started off without uh, any reference really to Christianity, starting off just looking at the whole idea of the meaning and purpose of life, which of course in the midst of World War II was a question that was at the forefront of people's minds. And he's built this whole book as an argument, which is why we keep reviewing. And he starts off with this whole idea of right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And this whole idea of the law of human nature, the fact that we know what we ought to do as humans, but we generally don't do it. And when we don't do it, we come up with excuses because we feel badly that we didn't do it. And so part of what Lewis was trying to do in that book was to get across the idea that there is something more than just the world that we see, that this moral law and the power behind it are real things. And Lewis talked with the BBC during this time period about how important it was that Christians learn to be translators of the faith, that they'd be able to explain it in terms that are meaningful to ordinary men and women. So uh, that is something that is particularly important um, for us today. So just a reminder, make sure you are muted there. So that translating the faith, translating uh, what we believe into ways that people who are not Christians can understand is super important today. So the second book, uh, that the BBC asked him to do this series of talks was on what Christians believe. And the first thing that caught Lewis um, out of his atheism was this idea that he had an idea of just and unjust, of good and of evil. And as he looked at that intellectually, he realized that there was no way to be able to figure out those sorts of standards if there was nothing outside of the universe. And so he talks about our uh, life as the whole idea of being an enemy-occupied territory. That Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a campaign of sabotage, and that church is where the resistance meets. And so it is vitally important that Christians be part of the church. He talks about free will, that free will is the only thing that makes love possible. He talks about the quest for happiness outside God, that God cannot give that to us because outside of God, there is no such thing. So he then goes on to talk about his famous trilemma, 
that Jesus cannot be said just to be a good moral teacher. Lewis says, a man who said the sort of things Lewis, Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And he says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And he then goes on to talk about what Jesus taught, but that that was not the real purpose of Jesus's being here, that his purpose was to come and to die for us, to make atonement for our sins, to open the way of everlasting life. And it's no accident that over a third of the space of the Gospels is dedicated to that last week of Jesus's life. And that whole idea that Jesus accomplished on the cross by his death and then by his resurrection, the ability to draw us in to his life and that when we come to him, that life spreads into us. And so the great implication of that book is the truth and paradox we see in the Christian life. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that brings us to book three, the one that we're currently in about Christian behavior. And this is something that is so important right now because our culture has completely lost its ideas about what constitutes appropriate behavior. And Christians have one of the very few coherent systems of morality that's out there. And we need to remember um, how beautiful that is. So the first chapter, Lewis starts off talking about the three parts of morality and that great quote about the schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. And he said he thought God was that sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. Lewis then gives the great analogy of the ships sailing in formation uh, that they have to keep a right distance and right position with respect to one another, but they also have to have their internal working straight, their rudder working, their speed right, or else they will mess up everyone else. And then lastly, they have to be sailing to the right destination. So he uses that as an example of the three parts of morality, fair play and harmony between individuals, tidying up or harmonizing the things inside each individual, and the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for. And he talks about how you cannot make men good by law, and that without good men, you cannot have a good society. This is much the same thing that you can read if you remember back in your American history class, if you took it decades ago before it uh, had the curriculum rewritten, uh, you might have read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and he talked about America being great because America was good. And that's that whole idea that the, the goodness, the faith of people is what enables people to be able to live in a law-abiding society. Lewis then goes on to talk about how what you believe about the universe, what you believe about ultimate reality is incredibly important. Because if Christianity is true, the individual is eternal in a way that no nation or state or civilization is. And therefore, the individual is more important than anything else. And that the life of the individual, because it's eternal, uh, must be considered the most important thing in society. So there are a couple of implications from this chapter that are really important. First is that we Christians need to re-engage with the truth and beauty of God's law as expressed in Psalm 19. The idea that God's order for things is a recipe for human flourishing. It's not something that's designed to keep us down and make us miserable. It is truly the pathway of joy if we will only follow it. And the second thing that as Christians, particularly in this polarized culture, we need to be all about building bridges. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation, and we are the only ones that have the answer to the things that are wrong in our culture right now. 
And Jesus' reminder in the Sermon on the Mount is so important. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So the next chapter is about the cardinal virtues, and we've commented that the sad thing about this chapter is it sounds so old-fashioned. Virtue is not something that seems to be uh, particularly popular these days. So these four cardinal virtues, prudence, temperance, justice, or fairness, and fortitude, courage, um, the kind of courage that faces danger, as well as the kind that sticks it under pain. And Lewis talks about how perseverance is deeply related to virtue, that when you persist and persevere in trying to do just actions, to model the virtues, that in the end you develop a certain quality of character, and that that is classically what has been meant by virtue. It is that quality of character, not the isolated things themselves. So the next chapter is on social morality. And Lewis makes very clear that Christ did not come to preach anything new in this idea, um, that most of what he talked about can be found right in the Old Testament. The summary of the law that we use in our liturgy in the Anglican Church every Sunday actually comes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. So what Jesus said is the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The second thing that Lewis says is that Christianity does not have a detailed political program for applying do as you would be done by, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that means that we cannot put our trust in political systems. And Lewis says a Christian society is not going to arrive until most of us really want it. And we're not really going to want it until we become fully Christian. And that is all about what it means to love my neighbor as myself. It reminds me of that old Peanuts cartoon where Linus is talking to Charlie Brown. And he says, I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. And that's the problem, I think, that so many of us have with putting our trust in politics is that we are all about saving humanity or doing what's right for humanity but we forget our duty to the people that are individuals in our lives. And Lewis says, I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself until I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so as I warned you, we're driven on to something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters. For the longest way round is the shortest way home. And what he's getting at here is the model that Jesus gave us of Jesus each day encountering individuals and ministering to individuals, not creating a social program or a political agenda, but working one by one to draw people through his love into the kingdom of God. And that is a great model for us. The next chapter on morality and psychoanalysis, I think I said last week, uh, you could sum this up by saying Christianity good, Freud bad. Uh, and the basic idea is that Freud's philosophy, uh, all of those things like the Oedipus complex and the Electra complex and uh, religion uh, being a crutch and all of those kinds of things, um, those things are antithetical to Christianity. And Freud is not talking about anything in which he has training in those areas. His big contribution of psychoanalysis of talking through problems is a very real thing, but the rest of what he has to say is in contradiction to Christianity. And Lewis says so much of this has to do with the idea of moral choice and thinking about the fact that each one of us is given some raw material by the life into which we are born. And he says that each of us has a choice on what to do with the material that is presented to us, to either put it to his own advantage first or to put it last. And this free choice is what morality is concerned with. The bad psychological material is not what we're concerned with. So he goes on to say that this is part of the reason that judging others is so wrong and why Jesus commands us not to judge 
in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Human beings judge one another by their external actions because that's what we see. God judges them by their moral choices, by their heart. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. He then goes on to talk about how every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, your character, your soul, that part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before, something better or something worse than it was before. And we have to keep that eternal perspective, thinking about what is the mark that each and every action leaves on that tiny central self, which no one sees in this life, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. He then concludes by saying that consciousness of sin is a good indicator of where we are on this continuum. That when we are actually getting better, when we're getting more Christ-like, we understand more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. Whereas someone who's thoroughly bad thinks he's just fine. And there's this great quotation from the theologian James Montgomery Boyce, the mature Christian knows he's always living in Romans 7, apart from the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he knows that dependence on the Holy Spirit is not something that he has attained once for all, but that it is the result of a daily struggle and a constantly renewed commitment. What is sanctification? Is it an awareness of how good we are becoming, or is it a growing sense of how sinful we really are? So we will constantly turn to and depend on Jesus Christ. If we are mature in Christ, we know it is the latter. So some implications of this. One thing that is so important is to know what's wrong with the Freudian worldview so we can present the Christian worldview as a better alternative. The freedom of self-forgetfulness that enables us to shun judgment and pride and remembering the power of choice. Lewis then goes on in the next chapter to talk about sexual morality, and he gets right to the point and he says there's no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage between a man and a woman with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And he says our cultural view of sexuality is really messed up, that it is uh, something that has gone very far wrong. And so much of that comes from these three reasons. The first is wrong thinking from our culture, this idea that we are human animals and that the more authentic we are, the more we live out our instincts. And that the, this idea is that any sexual act to which you're tempted in the moment is also healthy and normal. Of course, we heard a lot of this in the 60s, those of us that are old enough to remember that. If it feels good, do it. And that's sort of this idea that continues to pervade our culture. Who is anyone else to tell you not to do what you feel like doing? The second thing that Lewis says is there's a sense of futility. That we think if we can't succeed in resisting temptation, we should just give up. But Lewis says, no, 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 no. This process of resisting trains us in habits of the soul and teaches us to depend on God. He then goes on to say that repression can be a bad thing, but resisting, suppressing an unhealthy desire is right and good. And he concludes the chapter by saying the sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least bad of all the sins. A cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute, but of course, it's better to be neither. So the culture, of course, is still pressing on this issue, and we have to counter with a biblical understanding of what it means to be human, to be created by God. And I'm going to try to remember to put a link into a little program uh, that was done by um, John Yates and uh, the new rector who is at Falls Church, Virginia, um, Sam, whose last name I'm forgetting. And it was a great program on sexuality that I would commend to you. The other thing to notice is Lewis holds the line completely on exactly what scripture teaches here, which is a good lesson for us. We then talked about Christian marriage, um, how important that is, the idea of one flesh that Jesus talks about, 
that marriage is for life, and then a whole long discourse about the problem with feelings, which is the disease of our culture. We're obsessed with feeling and love and finding our soulmate and having that perfect partner. And Lewis says, no, 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 that is infatuation. And when scripture talks about love, it is commitment, it is action. Read 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love does not seek its own way, love believes the best, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Those are all actions, not feelings. And then Lewis also says this idea that if you're married to the right person, you can expect to feel these wonderful feelings of love for the rest of your life, um, that that makes you believe that you must have married the wrong person when you don't feel that way anymore. And he says, of course, that's completely backwards. Lewis then goes on to talk about Christian versus civil marriage and the whole idea of headship and mutual submission. So there's a lot of really good countercultural wisdom from scripture about this. If you know people who are engaged, it's a great thing to give them to read. And then last week we talked about forgiveness. Lewis said that uh, he had thought chastity was the most unpopular virtue, but when he started thinking about teaching on forgiveness, he thought that's probably the one that's even more unpopular. Loving your neighbor as yourself, that neighbor including your enemy, and that duty to forgive, and he says it's so difficult. And he talks about the requirement of forgiveness that's front and center in what Jesus teaches, front and center in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he says, there are no two ways about it. If we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. And we need to start working on that actively. And then he uses the analogy of loving our neighbor as ourselves and thinking about how do we love ourselves? And most of us, we hope in our best moments, realize that although there are some things that are good about us, that we've got plenty that's wrong with us, uh, that we have sin, we are false and full of sin as the old hymn says, um, and that we hate that part of ourselves, but we don't hate ourselves. And so Lewis says this is a great reminder of what it means to hate the sin, but to love the sinner. He then goes on to say that one of the things that we are really bad about in our culture is that we class people as our enemies, and then we just expect them to be bad. We really sort of hope that they're going to be bad because it will show that we are right in our judgment about them. And Lewis says that when we feel that way, we will see things that are gray as black. And the longer we persist in that kind of hatred and resentment, white itself will seem black. And he said, finally, we'll insist on seeing everything, God and our friends and ourselves included, as bad, and we won't be able to stop will be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. And this is going on all over our culture right now with all of this resentment, all of this failure to forgive, all of this insisting on our rights. Lewis then goes on to say that punishment, uh, when it's just punishment, is not to be despised. And he says that that is partially in the Christian view because man lives forever, so punishment is only for a time. And he says that dealing with resentment is perhaps the most important thing, that every time it crops up, day after day, year after year, all our lives long, we must hit it on the head and get rid of it. He says we must never begin to buy into the world standards about this, and we must wish the good of our enemies. And he says that it is so important that we do this. We read the... Uh, excerpt from the great divorce about the murderer who was in heaven and the guy who um, had worked with him who's in hell and the guy who's in hell says i was a good man i just want my rights i don't want anybody's bleeding charity and of course the man in heaven says what you need is the bleeding the bleeding charity that is jesus on the cross that we can't earn our way we're never good enough and then this little part from the Screwtape Letters preface of 1961, we must picture hell as a state where everyone's perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Everyone wishes everyone else's discrediting, demotion, and ruin. 
Sounds like he's been watching the news media in this country for the past six months. We are very much living in what Lewis describes right there, which is why the gospel and forgiveness is so important. So the few implications of this, the primacy of forgiveness, all Jesus' parables, the Lord's Prayer, and then Jesus' own prayer from the cross, the people who have nailed the Son of God onto the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How dare we not forgive? And then love your enemies, as we said before, and thirdly, the corrupting power of hatred and bitterness. And this quotation attributed to Nelson Mandela Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. So that brings us tonight to the chapter called The Great Sin. And y'all might have been talking about this earlier before I came on, but it's interesting. Today is the anniversary of Chuck Colson's death. Chuck Colson, of course, was the uh, Watergate burglar, uh, Nixon's general counsel, uh, a man obsessed with power who had gotten to the height of the worldly uh, heap and then got caught in Watergate and convicted, sentenced to jail. Uh, as his life fell apart, one of his friends shared with him this book, Mere Christianity, and as they talked about it and as they read this particular chapter on pride, Chuck Colson was so convicted uh, that he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he became the founder of Prison Fellowship, um, founder of Breakpoint Ministries, uh, both of those ministries that have changed the lives of tens of thousands of people. So, of course, the great sin, uh, Lewis says, this is the part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all others. There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit they're bad-tempered or they can't keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they're cowards. I don't think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. When I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you the center of Christian morale, morality did not lie there. The center of Christian morality, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Does this seem to you exaggerated? The more pride one has, the more one dislikes pride in others. If you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way to ask is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? or refuse to take any notice of me, or shove their oar in, or patronize me, or show off. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive by nature, while the other vices are competitive only by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're really not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, Pride is gone. That is why I say pride is essentially competitive in a way the other vices are not. The sexual impulse may drive two men into competition if they both want the same girl, but that is only by accident. They might just as likely have wanted two different girls, but a proud man will take your girl not because he wants her, but just to prove to himself that he's a better man than you. Greed may drive men into competition if there's not enough to go around. 
But the proud man, even when he's got more than he can possibly want, will try to still get more just to assert his power. Nearly all those evils in the world which people put down to greed or selfishness are really far more the result of pride. Take it with money. Greed will certainly make a man want money for the sake of a better house, better holidays, better things to eat and drink, but only up to a point. What is it that makes a man with 10,000 pounds a year anxious to get 20,000 pounds a year? It is not the greed for more pleasure. 10,000 pounds a year in the 1940s will give you all the luxuries that any man can really enjoy. It is pride, the wish to be richer than some other rich man, and still more, the wish for power. Because, of course, power is what pride really enjoys. There's nothing makes a man feel so superior to others as being able to move them about like toy soldiers. It is pride. What is it that makes a political leader or a whole nation go on and on demanding more and more? Pride again. Pride is competitive by its very nature. That is why it goes on and on. If I'm a proud man, then as long as there's one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. The Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. So just to pause here for a moment, one of the things that is a great way to see this is when you look at international relations. And if you want a little microcosm of this, um, there is a series that you can get streaming that's called Madam Secretary, which is a series that has a number of things that are good about it. One is that the husband is a theology professor, uh, which is always a nice thing to see on television. But what you see in these negotiations with this woman who is supposed to be the U.S. Secretary of State is how much these negotiations and the whole posturing that goes on among nations is all about pride. No one wants to look humble on the international stage. It is all about pride and these national leaders, it is all about pride. So Lewis then goes on to say that pride always means enmity, that pride is enmity. Enmity, of course, is another word that essentially means hatred. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God as well. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride toward their fellow men. The atheist that rails against God is railing because of his own pride. He wants to say, I'm the captain of my soul, and there's no one that can tell me any different. So Lewis then goes on to say, I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when he said that some would preach about him and cast out devils in his name, only to be told at the end of the world that he had never known them. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap.
Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is if you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. It is a terrible thing that the worst of all the vices can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. But you can see why. The other and less bad vices come from the devil working on us through our animal nature. But this does not come through our animal nature at all. It comes direct from hell. It is purely spiritual. Consequently, it is far more subtle and deadly. For the same reason, pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity, that is, by pride. The devil laughs. He's perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he's setting up in you the dictatorship of pride, just as he would be quite content to see your chillblains cured if he was allowed and return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And of course, just to pause for a moment, one of the great ironies of the Gospels is that we see that Jesus' chief opponents, the people who couldn't abide him in his ministry and his teaching, were not the sinners, the people that were doing all the things that the law said was wrong. No, those who wanted to put Jesus to death were the religious establishment, the religious leaders, the ones who could watch Jesus heal a man with a withered hand, who could watch Jesus tell a paralyzed man to stand up and walk, and then immediately begin to plot to kill him because they were so entrenched in their own self-righteousness, their pride, and the grip on power that it gave them that they could not even see that they had become exactly what the law of God warned about. So Lewis then goes on to talk about several misunderstandings to avoid. So he says, first, pleasure in being praised is not pride. The child who's patted on the back for doing a lesson well, the woman whose beauty is praised by her lover, the saved soul to whom Christ says, well done, are pleased and ought to be. For here the pleasure lies not in what you are, but in the fact that you've pleased someone you wanted and rightly wanted to please. The trouble begins when you pass from thinking I have pleased him all is well to thinking what a fine person I must be to have done it. The more you delight in yourself and the less you delight in the praise, the worse you are becoming. When you delight wholly in yourself and do not care about the praise at all, you've reached the bottom. That is why vanity, though it is the sort of pride which shows most on the surface, is really the least bad and most pardonable sort. The vain person wants praise, applause, admiration too much, and is really always angling for it. It's a fault, but a childlike and even in an odd way, a humble fault. It shows you are not yet completely contented with your own admiration. You value other people enough to want them to look at you. The real black diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you do not care what they think of you. Of course, it's very right and often our duty not to care what people think of us if we're doing so for the right reason, namely because we care so incomparably more what God thinks of us. But the proud man has a different reason for not caring. He says, why should I care for the applause of that rabble as if their opinion were worth anything? No, I am an integrated adult personality. All I have done has been done to satisfy my own ideals or my artistic conscience or the traditions of my family, or in a word, because I'm that kind of chap. 
If the mob like it, let them. They're nothing to me. In this way, real thoroughgoing pride may act as a check on vanity, for as I said in a moment ago, the devil loves curing a small fault by giving you a great one. We must try not to be vain, but we must never call in our pride to cure our vanity. Better the frying pan than the fire. A second misbelief is the whole idea of what we mean when we say proud of. We say in English that a man is proud of his son or his father or his school or his regiment, and it may be asked whether pride in this sense is a sin. I think it depends on what exactly we mean by proud of. Very often in such sentences, the phrase is proud of means has a warm-hearted admiration for. Such an admiration is, of course, very far from being a sin. But it might perhaps mean that the person in question gives himself airs on the ground of his distinguished father or because he belongs to a famous regiment. This would clearly be a fault, but even then it would be better than being proud simply of himself. To love and admire anything outside yourself is to take one step away from utter spiritual ruin. Though we shall not be well so long as we love and admire anything more than we love and admire God. And then Lewis comments on God's character. We must not think pride is something God forbids because he's offended at it, or that humility is something he demands is due to his own dignity, as if God himself was proud. He's not in the least worried about his own dignity. The point is, he wants you to know him, wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He's trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible, trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we've all got ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots we are, versus the relief, the comfort of taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. So Lewis says that the last thing is that we have the wrong image of humility. And this is one of the key points of the chapter. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's just a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I'm going to say that again. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. This whole idea of humility is so very important. And some of Lewis's quotes are strung together sometimes into a saying that he didn't actually say, but is, um, I think, quite what he meant. And that saying is that humility does not mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. And I think that's exactly right. Being so other focused that you're not thinking about yourself, focused on God, focused on others. It's like that old acronym of joy, um, J-O-Y, Jesus J first, others O second, yourself third, J-O-Y means joy. So some implications from this chapter. First, understand what pride is as our narcissistic culture blinds us. The definition of pride or hubris is this, 
dangerously corrupt selfishness, the putting of one's own desires, urges, wants, and whims before the welfare of other people, irrationally believing that one is essentially and necessarily better, superior, or more important than others, failing to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. Dante's definition of pride was love of self perverted to hatred and contempt of one's neighbor. And this is something that's so important because our culture has become so narcissistic that these things that are part of that definition, we are often taught that those are good, that those are the things that you should pursue. Schools teach students to pursue those things, that you have to speak your truth. You have to get what is owed to you. Um, all of this is absolutely flying in the face of what Christianity teaches. And the second point is to beware of pride, the example of the Pharisees, and this great parable from Luke 19. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, we miss how shocking this is. It's pretty shocking, but when we really understand the context, it's even more shocking. The Pharisees were the definition of righteousness in this culture. People bowed down when they walked by. They believed the Pharisees to be models of what it meant to keep the law. And here we have this Pharisee. Uh, he's not really even praying. He's reciting a eulogy about how great he is. Uh, and then the tax collector, the lowest of the low, the traitor, the person who was Jewish, who worked for the hated Roman government to get money from his own people to give to the Romans, the person that a good Jew would cross to the other side of the street to avoid. This is the person that Jesus says will be justified. It is, it is shocking in the extreme. And then, of course, that phrase that's in the Old Testament and then quoted in the epistle of James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we are proud, we are asking for God to oppose us. That's not very smart. Thirdly, cultivate gospel self-forgetfulness, a servant heart, and empathy. Remember a couple of months back, we talked about Tim Keller's excellent book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, that I will give a plug for again. Um, that self-forgetfulness, the servant heart and empathy, that is the heart of what it means to avoid pride. And we have this wonderful part in Philippians chapter two about this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that brings us to what I think is one of the most poignant passages in the New Testament. And here we see Jesus with his disciples 
on the road to Jerusalem when Jesus knows that he's walking to his death and he tries to explain what is going to happen to him. And rather than be upset or offer comfort or help, they ask him which one of them can be the greatest and sit in the place of honor. They utterly ignore his pain and agony that he's sharing with them because of their obsession with their own pride and position. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Wow. Listen to that. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine the discouragement in Jesus's heart at that moment? And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those, it is for, those for whom it has been prepared. And when the tone heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As one theologian has said, we are never more like Christ than when we serve, because when we serve, our eyes are off of ourselves and on others. And coming full circle back to that music that I couldn't get to play, love one another with a pure heart fervently See that you love one another. And fervently means having or displaying a passionate intensity, ardent, intense, zealous, hot, burning, wholehearted. If we are loving others and serving others in that way, we will not have the energy or the bandwidth to be so focused on ourselves. Let's close by saying together this passage, which is particularly relevant to this chapter. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we confess to you the pride, hypocrisy, and self-importance of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn to be like that tax collector, to fall on our knees 
every moment and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, we pray that you would draw us close to your heart, that you would fill us with fervent love for you and for our neighbor. Lord, that we would be so consumed with loving you and loving others that our pride would be subsumed and burned away. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love the way that Jesus did, that the whole world might come within the reach of his saving embrace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.